scribe from Philippians 2, in verse number 7, where we read, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And this verse uh, can be misunderstood because of this made himself of no reputation. And in Philippians 2, in uh, verse number 8, uh, we go down a little further here, and I need to finish making my way to the passage. There we go. We, uh, we actually actually go back up to verse number 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. So there has been some through the years who have misunderstood uh, the meaning of this passage, the meaning of this phrase, but made himself of no reputation. Uh, it has is caused some uh, debate uh, among theologians and commentators, but we must understand first and foremost that Christ never ceased to be God. When God became man, when the Word became flesh, it wasn't that Christ ceased to become or ceased to be God for. 33 years while he was here on the earth. That is not the case. That, that would be a false teaching to teach that Christ ceased to be God or temporarily uh, was not God, set aside his divinity for 33, uh, three, 33 and a half years, uh, roughly. And so for that period of time, uh, Jesus Christ was just man and, and not God. That would be a, a false teaching. And that is not what Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8 are teaching, or verses 6 through 8 are teaching. Okay? There are false religions out there. The Mormons, for instance, the Mormons teach that Christ became God. He is the example for us who can also become gods. That's what the Mormons teach, that Jesus Christ was, I think he's referred to as the spirit brother of Satan, if I remember right, in in Mormonism. And he became God, and we can, like Jesus, become gods ourselves. And only by following uh, Mormon principles, of course. Derek? Ye shall be as gods. Yes. 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 And now, and now we see even that fulfillment in our culture today with this expressive individualism, and we all have become little gods unto ourselves. And uh, that lie continues to permeate uh, in a little different form, but even in our culture. Yes, Jeff. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's il- it's illogical. You're right. Good point. So, how then do we 
solve this tension of Jesus Christ being 100% God and 100% men, 100% man. How do we solve that tension? We don't solve it. We accept it by faith. We understand that this is the teaching of Scripture. Just as the, uh, the, the false teaching uh, is out there that there is three gods, God the Father, and then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, three different gods. There's uh, false religions out there that teach a multiplicity of gods and deny the Trinity. But the Trinity did not cease when Jesus came to the earth. Jesus Christ has been God from eternity past. He is God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, one essence, and that didn't change when Jesus Christ came to the earth. So Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man. In theological terms, we refer to this as the hypostatic union. And it is something that if you want to go into a theological study and pull a theology doctrines book off the shelf, I can recommend some good ones. I had to do quite a bit of reading in Bible college and seminary, and I have a couple of those theology books. It was interesting, my undergrad book was about this big, and then my seminary book was like that big. And we were, we were given our syllabus at the beginning of the semester, and sometimes it was go read Strong's theology, and they would give you 50 pages, and you'd, you'd have to, to read it, and you'd have a test or a quiz on it on Friday. And it's just the way it was, and uh, we had to really dig in deep. Yes? Oh, right. Yes. Sure. Right. Oh, it, it is. It is. A lot of times we want to put God in our box so that we can somehow be better than the other theologian or out-talk, out out-debate someone else. You're right. A lot of it comes down to pride. So some have uh, looked at this passage and have tried to uh, explain it. And as a matter of fact, it, 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 it creeped into our, our hymns. And it wasn't that there, were, uh, that there was a, a wrong uh, idea of Jesus Christ uh, being uh, fully God and fully man. But in our hymnals, if you'll find hymn number 111, and I'm going to grab my, my bottle of water. I left it up here. I'm going to need this today. 111, hymn number 111. Now, I don't have one of our old hymn books. I don't, I don't know if this hymn was in our old hymn book. But I remember a hymn book that uh, we used years ago at uh, the church I grew up in. Uh, it had a little different version of hymn number 111. And Charles Wesley wrote this hymn. And Charles Wesley was... Uh, a free will uh, Arminian, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to get into a debate over Arminianism versus Calvinism. That's, that's not my point. 
Um, but because of his Arminian theology, he put a little bit too much emphasis on the emptying of Christ to the point that there were some, and Charles Wesley was a great theologian and a great hymn writer. I'm not trying to be overly critical. Charles Wesley was a saved man, and I believe we'll meet him in heaven one day, and we'll thank him for the many hymns. But there was a different version that I grew up singing. And you'll notice in stanza number two, hymn number 111, And Can It Be? It's a wonderful hymn. But stanza two, He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, humbled himself in matchless love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. I think you'll find in some of the old hymn books, it'll say in stanza two, emptied himself of all but love. Okay? And I believe it is correct and accurate, more accurate to use the version that we have in our hymn books. It's a wonderful hymn, and I don't want to throw Charles Wesley to the spiritual junkyard because Charles Wesley was a a saved man, a great theologian, but he, he emphasized our Arminian theology so much that it came out even in that hymn, and the emphasis there was on his emptying himself of all but love. Well, that causes some people to think that Jesus ceased to be God. So some have tried to even put this in another form. Well, Jesus was God, but then there were times where he would not be God. And he would kind of, it would kind of come and go. When, when he really needed to be God, he could be, he could be God. But when he didn't really need to be God, he wasn't God. That's dangerous as well. That's not accurate, scripturally, biblically accurate either. Okay, so we really have to understand and accept by faith what the scripture is teaching and interpreting scripture by scripture and accepting the truth of the word of God, even though our finite minds might have a hard time fully grasping and understanding this. Okay, so the, the phrase to empty or made himself of no reputation, it's translated in Romans 4 and verse 14, made void, 1 Corinthians 1.17, made of none effect. 1 Corinthians 9, 15, make void. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 3, should be vain. So, simply put, made himself of no reputation means that Jesus Christ humbled himself. He did not hold on to a rank or a privilege. It was not something to be grasped, held on to, to the point that he would refuse to come to this earth, take on human flesh, deal with all the sinless infirmities of human flesh, deal with people like you and me, and suffer and die on the cross for our sins. It's simply saying that Jesus Christ humbled himself so much that he did not hold on to the glories of heaven. He would have been completely just to have stayed in heaven and left us all to die in our sins. He would have been completely just to do that. And we complain about injustice and unfairness. 
We have it all wrong. We have it totally man-focused and man-centered. And I'm not saying that there isn't problems of justice and fairness. There are. But we have way too much emphasis on our rights and way too much talk about ourselves being victims and way too much focus on what I should be getting out of and what I deserve and what you owe me. Way too much emphasis on that. When Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven and came down to this sinful earth, was clothed in human flesh, never ceased to be God, but the word became flesh. Tempted like as we are, yet in all points, in all points, yet without sin. And died on the cross for our sins. We talked about if Christ had come in the full manifestation of all of his glory as God, then what would have happened upon God revealing himself in all of his glory to humanity? We would have been gone. We couldn't survive in the presence of God and his holiness and all of his glory. Moses, we talked about last week, had to veil his face, and he only saw the hinder parts as the glory of God went by. Jeff? Yes. 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 It's, it's, that's a good point. The, the expression in Charles Wesley's day of love was a richer, deeper meaning than, unfortunately, what we have today. That's a good point. We have a much more shallow understanding of love, and our culture has affected us too much because of the, uh, the shallowness and the superficiality uh, of love. That's a, that's a good point. Um, so, again, I don't want to be too hard on Charles Wesley, but it is, I think, a, a good uh, way to improve... Uh, if I can say it that way, uh, a good edit to that, that hymn. Yes. Yes, they were brothers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, they, and they, they started the Methodist church. 
back when it was a good church. Now it's obviously very liberal, and they're, they're splitting uh, now uh, over something that they should have split over a long time ago. But anyway, that's another topic. What's that? Oh, really? Wow. Wow. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so good, co- good comments so far. Last week we looked at uh, the first three ways in which Christ emptied himself. He set aside the glories of heaven. That was the first one. He left heaven's splendor to be born as a, a normal human being. He lived among what would have been considered in that day uh, poor people. Born in a stable, laid in a manger. He grew up in Nazareth, an unremarkable town in a less prestigious part of the country, Galilee. It was even asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, We talked about this uh, quite a bit last week already, so I won't uh, belabor the point. But secondly, he emptied himself in that he submitted to the Father. Again, this is... The, the right understanding of submission. Jesus Christ was fully God, and yet he submitted to the Father. Both God the Father and God the Son are fully God. They're one God. And again, in our finite minds, hard for us to fully comprehend this. But even in the Trinity, Christ submitted to the Father. I picked on Denny a little bit last week. Uh, Denny is security, he he leads our security team, does a great job with that, and I trust Denny with the security team, and he gives me policies, and he communicates with me, and I submit to him in one respect, because I don't micromanage the security team, but like I said last week, if he were to put an anti-aircraft gun on the top of the church and a machine gun nest at the front door, I'd be having a conversation with Denny saying, ah, I think that's a bit too much, okay? But at the same time, Denny submits to me even though he is my elder, and I say that very respectfully, okay? Even though we're equal, and in a matter of fact, in many ways, Denny's much smarter than me, wiser than me, has more experience than me, But he submits to me as his pastor while I also exercise a form of submission to him in the the areas of of security. It's not the best illustration, but it helps us. And we do this in our marriages. We submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. At the same time, the husband is commanded to love his wife and to lead the home and to be the the proper uh, leader, servant leader in the home. Okay? But... There is a mutual submission at the same time there is a leadership structure. So he submitted himself to the Father. Uh, We could go to Philippians 2 and verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He said, my meat is to do the will of of him that sent me. John 4 and verse 34. So he submitted himself to the Father. And then thirdly, we looked at last week, he surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He always was God. But 
what did Jesus do as a child growing up? I don't think he went around the neighborhood doing miracles for all the neighborhood kids, showing off his power. I don't think that he was constantly showing his deity in, I don't know what it would be for Jewish children growing up, but you have those games and you try to guess each other's, uh, what the other person's going to say or you, you, you figure out what their answer is going to be before they say it. I don't think Jesus was showing off his divinity by reading people's minds and using that to you know, be some sort of show-off. There's no, there's no sense of that at all. As a matter of fact, the only time we see Jesus as a child, besides his, his early days is when he's, what, 12 years old, and he's in the temple, and he's sitting with the, 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 the religious leaders, and he is mesmerizing them with his knowledge of the word of God and the authority by which he spoke. Here's the author of the Old Testament sitting there explaining to them the Old Testament, and they're astonished at his authority and his knowledge of the scriptures. But again... He was God, but he wasn't just doing miracles willy-nilly and showing off his superpowers, so to speak. Okay, And I want to say that in a, in a reverential way. As a matter of fact, we don't know of any miracles. As a matter of fact, in the book of John, the first miracle that is said that Jesus performed while on earth was at the age of 30 at the wedding of Cana where he turned the water into wine. First miracle in his earthly ministry. He submitted the independent exercise of his divine attributes to the will of the Father. Now, there would be times where Jesus would spend hours of the day as they brought the halt and the lame and the blind and the deaf and all the different illnesses of the day. He would spend hours healing even into the night, there would be times where he would say the word and heal from great distances. There would be times where he would feed the 5,000. But all of that was done according to the will of the Father. And then when it came time to die on the cross, he could have called, as the song says, he could have called 10,000 angels. But he chose not to do that. He chose instead to give his life for us. So he surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Now, number four, he stayed in relative poverty throughout his earthly life. A fourth way in which he emptied himself is he remained in a relatively impoverished life throughout his time that he lived here on the earth. Okay? First of all, he was born in a small, relatively obscure town, Bethlehem, Micah 5, in verse number 2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be, be, be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, 
yet out of thee. You, insignificant Bethlehem, out of you comes the Messiah, the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. We see the deity of Christ, even in that verse, the eternality of Christ, even in that verse. So we see that there. Um, We see also he grew up in a small town, Nazareth. He worked. What occupation is uh, Joseph said to have have had? And uh, Jesus would have worked with his earthly father, Joseph, in this occupation. What was it? Carpenter, okay. So a carpenter, I did a little bit of study on this, and maybe you've heard this before, but I've done a little bit of study on this. A carpenter in Bible times was a craftsman. Uh, I'm not familiar with the term uh, artificer, um, A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E-R, right? But that's another way to describe this occupation. What's that? Make stuff. stuff. Okay, all right. Okay. Um, Worked with wood. A carpenter in uh, Bible times worked with wood, sometimes with stone, as well as possibly with iron and copper. So he was a blue-collar worker, maybe by our vernacular. Joseph was. And that's where Jesus would have worked in his father's carpenter shop, working with wood and stone and possibly some metals. He didn't, he didn't have the employment of an aristocrat, uh, of a prince. What, what would be the, the customary types of work for a elite aristocrat or a prince? What would the, ki- what would the kind of jobs be that they would have? <laughs> Nothing, okay. Living off mom and dad, all right. Doing what? Eating grapes, Eating grapes okay. <laughs> Maybe sitting in the palace, learning from the, the religious leaders, from the well-educated and the knowledgeable. Maybe sitting there and uh, gleaning all of that uh, knowledge and wisdom. Pampered, no, no doubt, spoiled. Uh, Definitely not chipping away at stone or sawing wood or maybe as a blacksmith hammering uh, metal. Uh, I've not done a lot of uh, mechanical type work uh, in my life. Um, My dad was mechanically minded. My father-in-law is mechanically minded. But it it skipped me. Okay, Um, I can do some basic things. Um, YouTube helps a little bit. But usually I can get about so far into a mechanical type project and then I'm overwhelmed or I do something stupid and I need to, to get somebody to help me. It's just, it's just not, not my thing. It's just not where my gifts and my, my abilities are. Now, you know how it is as a husband. You've you got to hang things. You, you, just, you just do. You've got to figure out how to measure and you've got to figure out how to use a level and um, just... All you men who are, you know, wanting to get married one day, make sure you take that class on move, moving furniture and, and hanging things on the wall. Um, and just, again, good lesson on submission, mutual submission, because she may change her mind next month and want it somewhere else, okay? Yes. What's that? The yes, dear, yeah. Yes, right. Oh, my. 
So that's, that's a, a lesson in Jesus' humility. And this would have been an occupation that would not have made, in our terms, millions of dollars. This would not have made Joseph and Mary millionaires. This was enough of a living to probably eke by, to probably make things work, to make ends meet. They had a big family, as Jewish families uh, would have. We know that there were uh, at least four other half-siblings. Okay, uh, They were not, obviously, Jesus' biological um, brothers and sisters. But there would have been a basic level of living, of income, and it wasn't a, he wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. He didn't grow up in a family that made millions of dollars. His story, Jesus' story, and I, I get disgusted sometimes with, and, and, I, and I understand, I understand that there's, there's motivational principles in the Word of God. I, I get that. But I hope I, hope I don't come across the wrong way. But I, I get tired of preaching in Christian literature that is nothing but motivational stuff. I, I, I appreciate a, a Stephen Covey and some of his principles, but he's a Mormon, so you've got to be careful. I mean, Stephen Covey's got some good leadership principles and some ways to work with people that are very practical. John Maxwell, as far as I understand, he's a, a genuine believer, and he's got some good leadership principles, and he can give you ten steps for just about everything uh, to, to, to make you you know, rich and prosperous and work well with people. And I've read some of John Maxwell's stuff. But is the Bible just a motivational speech book? And, and I think we have to be careful because sometimes Jesus is made into a rags-to-riches story. Is that, Jesus, is that, is that what Jesus' example is? Is that why he came? To show how to go from the rags of life to the riches of life. Is, is that what he was? In our terms, did he just live his life to pursue the American dream? Sometimes that's the Jesus that's portrayed in Christian literature, especially in the prosperity gospel, but even in well-meaning people. Oh, the Bible, Jesus, it's a great example of how to come out on top, how to climb the corporate ladder. And can we apply biblical principles to leadership, to our employment, to various areas of our life that improve our life? Sure, but we improve our life by knowing Christ and knowing Him better and deepening our relationship with Him and letting Christ lift us up, let God lift us up in His time, in His way, instead of us trying to live out this Inspiration, inspirational life that is nothing but taking the Bible and turning it into a motivational book. Jeff? Yes. Sure. Sure. 
right. and not get rich quick. Right. And it's, it's, it's motivating us to, to suffer um, through what God wants to teach us about because on the other side is, is knowledge, is more enjoyment, is personal mm-hmm. friends, mm-hmm. things like that. What, what is motivating us to do would be something completely different from Satan's process of mm-hmm. Right. To empty ourselves and to 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 be filled with Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's a totally different kind of motivation. That's why that's why the the theme of a, a prosperity gospel is everything but you know, that people want to mm-hmm. preach. But motivational what is it motivating us to do? Mm-hmm. And it's a different standard of success. I think what I guess what I'm trying to say is we measure by a different standard of success than the world does. And what sometimes is superimposed on Scripture and on the life of Christ is a worldly standard of success. And Jesus can help you achieve the world standard of success. And that's the wrong message. That's not the message of, of Scripture. Phyllis? The power of positive thinking acts like a religion. Yes, yes. It, it becomes a religious. Right, right. Sure. It sounds good, but. And that's where the recovery for John Maxwell Right. Mm hmm. Right, you have to be very careful. There's a positivity in believing by faith in the principles of Scripture and living them out and having our eyes on Jesus, but it's not a positivity in ourselves and self-reliance because the men who are self-made often worship their creator, if you know what I mean. We end up worshiping ourselves. If we're a self-made person... We end up worshiping ourselves because we, we did it, right? So, yeah, the power of positive thinking can become uh, dangerous and, and even religious. All right, so that was the fourth way in which Christ emptied himself. But I want to spend the remaining amount of time that we have on the fifth way in which Christ emptied himself. He voluntarily gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. And this is ultimately why Christ came, was to die on the cross for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus was willing, in humility, to come and to be the sacrifice for our sin, to pay the penalty. He paid the debt that he did not owe. We had a debt that we could not pay, and he paid it for us. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, in verse number 4. In Matthew 27, in verse 46, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou 
forsaken me. Speaking to the fact that the wrath of God was poured out on Christ for us. He became sin for us. He paid the penalty. He was the sacrifice, the vicarious atonement for our sin. Someone find Galatians 3 and verse number 13. Someone find Galatians 3 and verse 13. And then if someone else could read for us 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. So Galatians 3 and verse 13 and then 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. Um, Grant, do you have Galatians 3, 13? Okay. Thank you. He became the curse for us, is what Galatians 3 and verse 13 says. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. Nate? So he bore our sins, 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. So now let's take a a minute and let's go back to an Old Testament illustration. Leviticus chapter number 16. Leviticus chapter number 16. And I hope we have enough time to, to cover this here quickly. Leviticus chapter number 16. We go down in the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 16 and we get to verse number 8. Leviticus 16, in verse number 8, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat. Into the wilderness. What is that picture? I mean, that, that, that's overwhelming. That the, the scapegoat, atonement on the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat, the priest, we read there, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. In a sense, Christ was the scapegoat. The sins were symbolically laid on that scapegoat, and the scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness. Our sins were laid on and Christ was sent out to die. That's a picture that should humble us and convict us, that Christ was willing to be the scapegoat for us. We're the ones who deserve to be sent out into the wilderness to die. And he did that for us. He bore the shame. He bore the penalty for our sins. From Easton's Bible Dictionary, I want to read this. From Easton's Bible Dictionary, we read that the priest made atonement over the scapegoat, laying Israel's guilt upon it, and then sent it away. The goat bearing upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. He has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Okay, we can even think of that. But going on, at a later period, an evasion or modification of the law of Moses was introduced by the Jews. The goat was conducted to a mountain named 
Tzuk, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, situated at a distance of 10 Sabbath days journey or about six and a half English miles from Jerusalem. At this place, the Judean desert was supposed to commence and the man in whose charge the goat was sent out while setting him free was instructed to push the unhappy beast down the slope of the mountainside, which was so steep as to ensure the death of the goats whose bones were broken by the fall. The reason of this barbarous, barbarous custom was that on one occasion the scapegoat returned to Jerusalem after being set free, which was considered such an evil omen that its reoccurrence was prevented for the future by the death of the goat. So they went so far as to go six and a half miles out to the edge of the desert area and push the goat down the side of the mountain to ensure that it died. Ensuring that the symbolic imagery of that goat taking the guilt and forever setting it aside. And that's the picture of what Jesus did for us. That's the emptying of himself, that he became the scapegoat. Hebrews chapter 9, in verses 10 through 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 10 through 14. Hebrews 9, verses 10 through 14. Hebrews 9, in verse 10 which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For at the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the emptying of himself. He was the great high priest who shed his blood, offered himself without spot to God to purge our conscience from dead works. To do what? To serve the living God. And then we close with this, Hebrews 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Five ways in which Christ emptied himself. And I, I would say that the fifth way is incredibly powerful and overwhelming. To think that the God of heaven would be clothed in human flesh and pay the penalty for our sins. Be that and be willing by his blood to purge us of our sins that we might serve him faithfully with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Any closing comments or questions? And then we'll be dismissed in prayer. No? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this powerful truth 
that you emptied yourself and that you humbly came, became sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Lord, thank you for humbling yourself and coming to this earth and dealing with people like us and then dying in our place. Lord, may we be once again renewed in our love for you and our desire to serve you. And Lord, may this Christmas season, as we reflect on the baby in the manger, Lord, may we be truly once again struck with the awesomeness of who you are and your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, for this unspeakable gift. We give you the praise and the glory for it. Pray you bless now the service to follow in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you for being here, and uh, we'll uh, start the service in about 16, 17 minutes. Thank you.